Stay hungry, stay foolish. Our guest's business model canvas changed the way the world creates and plans new business models. It has been used by corporations and startups and consultants around the world and is taught in hundreds of universities. After years of researching how the world's best companies develop, test, and scale new business models, he has produced his definitive work. Today's book explains what every organization can learn from the business models of the world's most exciting companies. The book explains how companies such as Amazon, Ikea, Airbnb, Microsoft, and Logitech have been able to create immensely successful businesses and disrupt entire industries. At the core of these successes are not just great products and services, but profitable, innovative business models and the ability to improve existing business models while consistently launching new ones. The Invincible Company presents practical new tools for measuring, managing, and accelerating innovation and strategies for reducing risk when launching new business models. Serving as a blueprint for your growth strategy, the Invincible Company explains how to constantly stay ahead of your competition. We welcome friend of the Innovation Show and the author of The Invincible Company, How to Constantly Reinvent Your Organization with Inspiration from the World's Best Business Models, Alex Osterwalder, welcome back to the show. Thanks a lot for having me back. This is great to be here. Let's dive straight in because there's so much in this work. And I was telling you off air, I know my introduction said it's your definitive work. I really felt that it builds upon all the other great work and your most recent book as well, which we only covered a few months ago. But I thought we'd start with the three main characteristics of invincible companies. Yeah, absolutely. First of all, no company can be invincible, but you can get close to that, right? So it's a very arrogant book title. But the idea behind it, and this is the first characteristic of what we call invincible companies, is if you want to stay ahead, you have to be able to reinvent yourself. And while you're successful, that's the key word, because often, you know, success is the beginning of failure uh, because you're preoccupied with growing and scaling, etc., but you don't take the time to reinvent yourself. Now, disruption is a lot more common these days. So if you don't reinvent yourself while you're successful, you can be sure that disruption is going to hit you. So that's the first characteristic. The second aspect is that the companies that we looked at, we really saw that you know, they're competing on superior business models. They don't just frame their thinking around product, services, price, and technology. Which means if you just do technology innovation, I'm not saying technology innovation is wrong, but you might not be able to stay ahead for very long because technologies get copied faster and faster. Products get copied faster and faster. So they have superior business models. Take Apple as an example. Well, what's keeping them ahead? Is it better phones? Well, that might be an aspect of it. It's almost like a religious thing between Android phones and iOS phones. But what really keeps them ahead is a superior business model around an ecosystem of application developers, an integrated kind of ecosystem around hardware, software, entertainment, et cetera, et cetera. So they're not competing on product services and price alone. They're competing on superior business models. And the third aspect, and this is probably the most difficult for, for most established companies that I see at least, is that really, really good companies, they compete beyond industry boundaries. They transcend industry boundaries. So you can't say, oh, this company is in banking. This company is in pharmaceuticals. That still exists. But the really great players that are ahead, they break through industry boundaries. And one of my favorite examples at the moment, Ping An, used to be a banking and insurance conglomerate. Well, guess what? They just started building the world's biggest health platform, which is called Ping An Good Doctor, because they believed they needed to play in arenas. And when they say arena, this is a much broader space. You know, this term, uh, terminology coined by Rita McGrath. So these are the three characteristics. Number one, companies that constantly reinvent themselves. Number two, competing on superior business models. And number three, transcending industry boundaries. So if you achieve these three, you can be sure it's going to be very hard for your competitors to beat you. 
The next set of three things you introduce, which is key in innovation, is that there are three types of innovation, three main types, because many organizations believe they were innovating, and they may just be, but they must understand which bucket they're innovating in. I'd love if you shared the three buckets. That's something that I just want to make that very explicit. We didn't invent these three categories. My inspiration for this came from Clay Christensen, the late Clay Christensen. But the reason why I really emphasize this a lot is because I see companies that think they're great innovators. They say, oh, we're doing innovation. Senior leaders saying, you know, we're doing all this complicated stuff. Then I ask, well, let's look at the types of innovations that you have. And the way I like to frame it is actually ask them, come up with your favorite innovations the last three years, and we'll put them into these three buckets. The first bucket is efficiency innovation. Are you doing things to improve your existing business model, your existing processes, like the sales force, marketing, et cetera? That's efficiency innovation. Now, efficiency innovation is great. It's helping you get better at what you're already doing pretty well, usually. And that's important. So don't get me wrong. I'm not saying this is wrong. But if you just do efficiency innovation and your industry or arena is transforming or your business model is dying, efficiency innovation is just going to help you more efficiently die. So it's usually not enough. Again, don't get me wrong. (laughs) Efficiency innovation is important and sometimes technologically very sophisticated, but it's not enough when the world is transforming. Brings us to the second bucket, sustaining innovation. An example, you're a car company, you come up with a new car model, the sales of this new car model is just going to replace the sales of the old car model. So it's not going to give you substantial growth, it's just going to keep you ahead. And again, if the the arena you're in is transforming, often sustaining innovation is not going to keep you alive for very long. Brings us to the third bucket, which is transformative innovation building new growth engines, building new business models that you're not familiar with yet, or even, you know, transcending industry boundaries. Taking the case of Amazon, that would be Amazon Web Services, which today is their biggest profit contributor. It's not the biggest business that they have, but the biggest profit contributor. Very different from their original business model, which, you know, started out around books and then e-commerce in general and then logistics, right? So these are the three buckets. Efficiency innovation, sustaining innovation, and transformative innovation. And the best companies, they do all three. Again, this is not a value judgment that you need to do one more than the other. It's really about knowing, or at least being very deliberate about doing these three. Then people ask, well, do I need to put 50% here, 20% here, 30% here? I said, don't be dogmatic. Just be aware. There are three categories. And if you do believe your industry is in process of disruption or the the arena you're playing in, then you probably should be investing in transformative innovation. If you believe you can stay ahead for another 10, 20, 30 years with the business model you have, maybe you don't have to invest in transformative innovation. But be aware there are three different types of innovation. Remember that little exercise I said? I asked senior leaders to come up with the innovations that they've you know, had the last three years, the ones that they're most proud of, put them into the three buckets. What happens? 99% of what they're doing is efficiency innovation. And that's an eye-opener to them. So the reason I asked them to do it rather than to tell them you should do this or that is because they can see it immediately. They say, oh, wow, we didn't even realize that we were not doing something that's con- going to substantially contribute to future growth for the next 10, 20, 50 years. So it's really interesting to see, you know, because some of these companies are winning prizes. I remember we were working with an airline. They got prizes for innovation, but 99% of what they were doing was efficiency innovation. So it's really surprising, you know, to go back to these kind of very basic thoughts to help companies and leaders understand what's going on in their organization when it comes to innovation. And this is where the book is a perfect complement for your business model canvas. And I think when people see it mapped out like you do, like you do with your clients, they really see it. They really see it come to life because many organizations are innovating with efficiency, but they're often just accelerating their own demise by making a broken business model come to its death quicker. Yeah, absolutely. And that's where we try to show how do you play this whole, you know, these three buckets And we like to call that a portfolio of initiatives. 
right? How do you improve what you have? Because again, that's very powerful. And in the short term, it can often unlock millions to billions of dollars. So again, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying efficiency innovation is a bad thing that actually can unlock in the short term a lot of value. But on the other hand, you know, in your portfolio, you should have future potential growth engines of which many will fail. That's the key word here. Efficiency innovation, you shouldn't fail too much because you're improving, you know, a known business model. In transformative innovation, where you're really exploring new arenas, new business models, you should actually make many, many, many small bets in order to figure out which ones could really work. And again, back to, you know, the characteristics of the invincible companies, the companies we see, they really invest in a portfolio and they accept that they will fail a lot. Guess what? They will have the big winners emerging from all of those failures. The known one is, is Amazon, of course. So the, the example I like is the Kindle Fire Phone. So it was a big failure, like hundreds of millions of dollars, right, that they lost. But Jeb Bezos uh, told the person who was leading this team, don't lose a, a night of sleep over this. And guess what? You know, what came out of that project was Alexa. So you actually need to have sometimes pretty big failures in order to, you know, to really win. But besides the usual suspect like Amazon, I think Ping An is a great example where you can really see you know, this big uh, financial conglomerate that said, we are going to become a technology company. So the founder, Peter Ma, he believed that the insurance and banking industry would be killed by technology companies. You know, think China, you have Alibaba. In North America, you would have Google and Microsoft. So he said, no, this industry is going to die. So he hired a lady called Jessica Tan, who built up this whole innovation engine. And here's the key thing. She was co or she became and still is the co-CEO. So innovation had power at Ping An. And the other thing that's important to point out, Peter Ma told Jessica Tan, you're not going to get it right. You're going to fail a lot. And that's okay because you need to experiment until we actually figure out which things are going to work. And guess what? They had a lot of investments that didn't work, projects that failed. Sometimes they learned from it. Sometimes they didn't and it just killed them. But again, like I mentioned before, you have Ping An, a good doctor coming out of that and many other successes. So today, Ping An is among the largest companies of the world because they strategically invested in that. And then you have companies, you know, who had beautiful turnarounds because they had that kind of approach. And Microsoft is a wonderful example of that, of you know, saying we need to reinvent ourselves while we're still pretty successful, might have missed the boat on a couple of things. And now Microsoft is among the biggest players and most successful companies of the world again, right? So you need to reinvent yourself constantly because being big today is not enough to survive anymore. And one of the things I took out of that was first ping on was the idea of a co-CEO because it was almost like one CEO was the explorer CEO and the other one was the exploit CEO. So one dealt with the business as it is today and the other experimented with the business as it is tomorrow. And then you take that into somewhere like Microsoft and you think that they make these bets while they're ahead because if you make the bets when it's too late, when you're disrupted or you're facing a decline in revenue, your mindset is totally different. A really nice example that I like is Logitech. Because innovation at the end of the day is about leadership. And that sounds trivial, but it's actually not. So if you take Logitech, it's been you know, the Swiss-American company known for computer peripherals, was very successful, grown for a very long time, but when the PC industry started to shrink, Logitech, you know, started to have a bit of a crisis. And they brought on a guy called Bracken Darrell, and he reinfused this entrepreneurial mindset that Logitech actually had at the beginning. And the reason I like this example is because it shows that growth and innovation has to do with the entrepreneurial mindset. It's not just about, oh, we're going to do technology, right? Logitech was always good at technology and they remain good at technology. But what they were starting to lose a little bit more 
was this entrepreneurial mindset. And that's what Brack and Daryl reinfused into the company. And he did an amazing, beautiful turnaround, also managing the portfolio of the company, moving away from the traditional computer peripherals into new growth arenas like gaming. And one of the strong, you know, most important things I think he, he did is reallocate resources from the traditional core business to these new growth engines. And he likes to call this seeds, plants, and trees. And saying the trees, you know, they're big, they're strong, but they're eventually they're going to fall over. So you need to really focus on those seeds. And that has to do with the entrepreneurial mindset. So if you don't do this, it's not going to work out. And if you take the example of, of Microsoft with Satya Nadella bringing in the growth mindset, that's very similar. It's a very similar kind of thing. So the entrepreneurial spirit is, I believe, today more important than ever before or more important than ever in established companies. Before, the execution mindset was the key thing. Today, the execution mindset is not enough anymore. So we need to reinfuse the entrepreneurial mindset that many companies had at the beginning, like even take a Nestle, a Swiss conservative company, right? 150 years old. They used to be a startup. Not anymore, of course. But here's the big thing, that these established companies need to reinfuse the startup spirit that they used to have, right? That's not easy to do, but that's exactly what we're seeing at many of these established players, that if they just hire, and this is not a value judgment, but if they just hire great managers, great executors, they're probably going to disappear. What you need is, and that's the reason why I'm saying it's not a value judgment, you need great managers and executors who run the business that's running today. But you also need to reinfuse this entrepreneurial spirit, and not just somewhere in a garage, but really at the very top of the company. Sometimes it's the CEO, sometimes it's a co-CEO, right? Bracken Daryl, CEO of Logitech. In the case of Ping An, it was a co-CEO. But the main thing here is um, the entrepreneurial spirit needs to have power in order to get reinfused into a company. I love that. And, you know, the idea of the seeds really appeals to me. I was raised in the Phoenix Park in Dublin, which is this beautiful park. And my father was the superintendent of the park. So he basically was the manager or the kind of orchestrator. And I remember when I was a kid around eight asking him, about the trees on the main avenue and because he was replanting the avenue mm. and he said that and it's a beautiful idea of innovation he said that he was planting them the trees because the older trees would protect the younger trees and one day the older yeah. trees would die and it always stuck with me as an innovation mindset and some of those new trees die as well they don't all make it because they get damaged or they get disease etc but i also thought about what you were saying there is you need to cut away the dead wood sometimes. And that's a very difficult thing. And, you know, one of the great turnarounds is, and there happened to be sponsor, and I mentioned our sponsor now, which is Microsoft for Startups, but they changed the mindset in the organization, which was a really difficult thing to do. And that meant actually having to replace some people. And I'd love to get your mind share on this, Alex. Oh, absolutely. And there's even some research on the topic. So Rita McGrath, has been researching this topic for quite a long time, good friend and Columbia scholar. So she shows that this ability to actually kill what's not working anymore, or even actually before, before it's not working anymore, this is crucial. Think of Kodak, always used as a great example of a company that couldn't reinvent itself. Well, they did some interesting stuff. And technology-wise, they were great innovators. They came up with the digital camera. They invented the digital camera but they were incapable of reallocating enough resources from the old world analog film to the new world digital. It's not that they didn't try. They just didn't go forward seriously enough. The counterexample is Fujifilm. Right? At the time, they were number two, and they were obsessed by dying. So they aggressively reallocated resources. They kept the analog film cut it back aggressively, cut out that dead wood, you know, to take your analogy there as well. And then they invested heavily into using their patents, their, you know, knowledge from manipulating chemicals and go into new arenas. Guess which one they went into? 
they went into cosmetics. Imagine that, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so, so very interesting how they aggressively reallocated those resources because they cut back. Kodak, on the other hand, had all their capital tied up still in factories, etc. So that's really important. I believe the most amazing companies, when they go through these transformations, they won't need to fire people. Okay, this is very important because today restructuring is associated with firing. And often you have to do that to stay alive because you didn't build a more flexible system before. The best companies are going to build internal marketplaces where resources can shift around, where it doesn't mean because you're innovating, you're going to kill the old in the sense of firing people. You're going to kill the old business malls, but you're going to move around people to new areas. Sometimes they have to learn. That sounds like, oh, but how is that possible? You know, take W.L. Gore, and, and other companies, you know, that have very interesting organizational models, they're trying to do exactly that, to say, well, if we are more flexible and, you know, we have this idea that businesses are eventually going to die in our DNA, in our organizational DNA, then we won't have to fire people. So that's what I, the reason I'm pointing this out is because I believe innovation is almost mandatory from a moral point of view because if companies can reinvent themselves, they can create you know, better workplaces and more stable workplaces. So I don't get excited just by helping a company make more money. I do think you know, that's the way you kind of measure if a company is successful in the marketplace, but it's an outcome. I believe what's interesting is helping these companies, these big companies reinvent themselves so they don't have to fire people. That is what gets me really excited. Can we create better workplaces with more interesting modern organizational structures so people are happy and they have job security? So I, I believe innovation is at the service of that. Innovation is not just at the service of making more money. And don't get me wrong, I believe that should be the way we measure it. At the end of the day, a company that doesn't make money is going to die and you have, you have to fire people again. But innovation has a larger purpose which is to help companies create better places to work and create more job security. And the reason I'm emphasizing this and why it gets me kind of excited, as you can feel, you know, I just get passionate about this, is because today, just a recent study from Gallup shows that 8 out of 10 people are not engaged at work. And that's really sad. 8 out of 10 people. Now, you can challenge the statistics, but even 5 out of 10, 50% would be sad. That means the workplaces today are just not good enough, right? We need to create better workplaces because if people are happy at work, they're going to be more happy in society. So it's just a moral obligation to get better at innovation. You're talking to the spirit of this show, and I'm so glad you pointed out that the idea of the trees protecting the young ones means the younger mindset owes something to the older mindset because yeah. the older mindset's almost paying for the experiment in, in a way. So they Absolutely. are often seen as enemies within an organization when they actually need to work in harmony. And you talk about this and there's a beautiful quote and I'm going to quote you here because you say, invincible companies design, manage and maintain both a strong explore and an exploit culture. They cherish operational excellence, planning and constant improvements when managing the present, yet they know they can't cost cut themselves into the future. They simultaneously embrace risk, experimentation, failure, and adaptation when exploring ideas for the coming years and decades. However successful today, they don't rest on the laurels. They already work for tomorrow. I absolutely love that. Oh, it, absolutely. And you know, the thing, the, the challenge here is that today there's some myths in innovation and they really bug me, right? So, uh, and I know there's no bad intent behind it, but innovators that call themselves pirates or rebels, that really bugs me because historically, what do we do with pirates and rebels? We kill them, right? <laughs> so, you know, and, and that's exactly what's happening in many organizations. The established part of the company says, why the heck are these guys over there, and, and I don't mean guys in you know literal sense, these women and men over there, why do, they, why do they have this exceptionalism? Why do they play by different rules? I don't get it. 
because they even emphasize, no, we're the pirates, we're the rebels. We don't need to follow the rules. No, you need to have a shared understanding. The executors need to understand why the innovators work differently. And the innovators need to acknowledge they wouldn't exist if the executors didn't give them money. So it needs to become a real partnership. You know, innovation or what we call, you know, explore and exploit the managing existing part. They need to live in harmony and there need to be really strong partnerships because guess what? You'll have people who are purely dedicated to exploit. You'll have people who are purely dedicated to explore, but many resources will flow between the two. So you might start with a small entrepreneurial team, two to five people, but increasingly once you grow, you might need access to the supply chain. You might need access, well, probably very quickly to marketing, to branding, to the lawyers. So, the resources need to flow between the two worlds. And what's also important for the innovators to understand is once a business becomes big enough, let's say in an established company that might be going from zero to $10 million in revenues, or whatever other currency you use, then it needs to be transferred to exploit, right? To the managers, because it's very different. So there are these life cycles in a business, the exploration from zero to five or 10 million in revenues, maybe then the scaling, which is also different from 10 to 100 million, and then managing it and protecting it somewhere from, from 100 million to a billion or a couple of billion. Those are different challenges, and we need to have organizational structures that allow us to manage these life cycles, managing mature businesses, inventing new ones. And the important thing you also pointed out is that not every one of these ideas is going to work, right? So in the explore area, we need to accept that many, many projects are going to fail. And failure is not a bad thing. It's part. Nobody is striving for failure. It's not a goal. But you don't get innovation without failure. So this experimentation, failing needs to become normal in an organization, which requires a different culture and different metrics. So there are all these challenges today that established um, companies are facing. It's actually the same for, for an SME, small, medium-sized company, or for an established company. We have to find new organizational structures, new leadership styles to actually make this happen. It's not an easy task. Good news is we know a lot about how to make it, you know, how to do it. It's really now a leadership commitment to actually turn that into something real. I thought deeply about this when I was reading the book and I read the book usually at nighttime and then they marinate in my head overnight. <laughs> and I woke up and I was thinking about a, another episode we did with Ian McGilchrist and he's the author of The Master and His Emissary and it's about the divided brain, left brain, right brain. I thought about how it's like there's a left brain and right brain in the organization because one is logic and the other is creativity. And they're both needed for the brain to work effectively. And he had a great line, Alex, in the book. And he said, there needs to be a tension between them. And he said, think of it like a tightrope. If the tightrope is not taut and tense, it's useless and ineffective. And he said, the tension between left and right brain can ha be like the bow of a bow and arrow, and it can propel the arrow to something new. And that is a lovely way, I think, of thinking about this, that the culture, when it's right, when it's balanced, when it's in harmony, you can create amazing things. And I'd love if you'd share some of the best cultures you've seen out there as an exemplar for us to strive towards. Yeah, I really like the, the, the analogy that you're making there, right? Because the, the left side of the brain can't work without the right side of the brain. And, you know, newest research actually shows that it's not that easy, actually, it, that image of left brain, right brain, logic, not might actually be pretty wrong it, in the sense there's some truth to it, but it's more complex. And I think that's what we're seeing in, in organizations as well, right? Because some of the things we do in Explore might deeply influence Exploit and the other way around. So these two parts are really interlinked. And, you know, in terms of really good practices and, and culture, is when you have a leadership that really starts to point out what this is all about. And sorry to go back to the kind of usual victim, but you know, in terms of publicly talking about innovation, Jeb Bezos says a couple of things about innovation that are really powerful. 
And I know, you know, Amazon is, is in the press and under fire for a lot of things, and they should be. You know, we need to observe large companies. But when it comes to innovation, there's, there are few companies that are making as many things public. So if we take the letters to shareholders from Jeb Bezos, we can hear this interesting theme throughout where Jeb Bezos says, Amazon is one of the best places in the world to fail. And the reason I'm emphasizing this one is because a lot of people say, Alex, Alex, but don't stop talking about failure. It's not about failure. It's about learning. Well, it's not about learning either. It's about building new growth engines. But the reason I think it's important that leadership emphasizes that failure is a good thing. And again, good thing in exploration. Failure is not a good thing in exploitation. If you're managing a supply chain or, you know, um, um, nuclear, a nuclear plant, failure is a bad thing, right? But in exploration, it's a good thing. And the reason we need to embrace it is you don't get one without the other. So if you want to innovate, if you want to have these new things popping up, you'll have to experiment a lot. And inevitably, you will fail a lot. If you say, oh, it's about learning, you're going to stigmatize failure because you're not, you, you, you can't use that word failure. Well, guess what's going to happen? everybody's going to run experiments that have no risk because they know they're going to jeopardize their career. So you need to really, you know, embrace failure so people won't fear for their jobs. So back to that, you know, Kindle Fire phone, the leader of that failure didn't get fired. And that's a very strong symbolic signal. You should get fired for stupid failures or failures in execution, but you shouldn't get fired for failing when you experimented within, of course, the strategy for the organization. So, so that's why that part is incredibly important. Failure is not the goal. Failure is annoying. No, nobody wants failure, but you won't get innovation if you don't allow people to fail. And that is the same thing at Ping An, like I mentioned, is that they... You know, Peter Ma, the original founder, who was an entrepreneur, went from zero to an you know, established company. He said to his co-CEO, Jessica Tent, you're not going to get it right. However smart you are, you're not going to get it right. And that's the culture you'll find in companies that are really good at innovation. They're humble enough to know they can't pick the winner. Now, let me give you an organization, give you a real example because all of this might, you know, it's just, we're just talking about the top and we're just talking about, you know, how this should, should look like. Very concretely on the ground, what does that mean? I'll give you an example that I like is uh, Bosch. So German, big engineering company, 400,000 people, you know, in, in industries like uh, the car industry, car parts, etc. They, over the last, you know, over three years, built this Bosch Accelerator program where they invested over three years into 200 projects and they gave these 200 projects 120,000 euro in three months. And that's the important part. Limited amount of money, small amount of money for a big company and small amount of time. After three months, the teams had to present evidence, not a beautiful spreadsheet, just a beautiful spreadsheet, just beautiful PowerPoints. No, they had to present the evidence that they collected from experimenting three months, mainly talking to customers at that stage, not building anything, because otherwise your money is, is, is gone right away. After three months, guess how many project, projects got follow-up investments? Only 30%. So 70% were killed, if you want. They weren't like technically killed. They just didn't get follow-up investment, right? And they the teams didn't see this as a failure because it was clearly communicated. This is the type of evidence we need. You can't find it. Not a problem. You go back to your, what you were doing before. You're not, it's not going to jeopardize your career. So the teams that got follow-up investments, they got 300,000 euros. So now you increase the investment because now the experiments might get more costly. You start to build something. You travel around the world, whatever. They maybe get something like six months or more. And again, after this time and that budget, they eliminated 75% of the project. So only 25% got follow-up investment. So if you do the math, from the 200 projects, only 15, and only in a good way, only 15 
made it to exploit, became, you know, execution projects. And that's the logic you need to apply in innovation. You need to know you're not going to pick it the winner. So here's a real-world example. But we have the data for a long time. Early-stage venture capital, we know that only one out of 250 projects or investments are going to give you an outlier, 50 times X on capital. So this, this thing that is already known in the venture capital world, where we invest in innovation, this is now getting into the corporate world. And not in the form of corporate venture capital. That's not what I'm trying to say here. In the form of investments in projects. It's a very different type of investment. And that is really starting to take off that kind of approach. So that's the culture you need to create where everybody feels comfortable with experimenting, where they know they're not going to get fired. And the last piece in terms of culture is that we need to follow something that Silicon Valley does really well. A lot of things I'd say we can criticize about Silicon Valley, but my friend Steve Blank, who launched the whole lean startup movement and modern entrepreneurship education, he likes to say that in Silicon Valley, there's one thing that we're really good at. You know how you call a failed entrepreneur in Silicon Valley? Experienced, right? So, <laughs> so same with innovators. It's not, it's this myth of the young innovator coming from, you know, engineering, from computer science or whatever, who's going to create the breakthrough innovation and technology. No, innovation is actually something, innovation and entrepreneurship is something you get better at over time. Good news now, we also know how to teach the tools of this. But it's like the medical profession. You're not going to become a heart surgeon just by reading the literature, right? But you won't become a heart surgeon just by practicing either. So it's this combination <laughs> between profession, you know, the professional education in medicine, physiology, and, and, and anatomy, but then also the doing. I think that the same level of maturity is starting to, you know, come up in innovation and entrepreneurship. We know how to teach it, but we also know you need practice, but you can't just learn it through practice, which is basically what we've done so far. My mind is buzzing because I have so many questions and I keep going to go down rabbit holes and then you send me down a different one. But uh, the de-risking step is absolutely crucial. And Steve Blank was on the show recently and he talked at length about this step in any kind of innovation, any kind of startup, and that that's actually what you're trying to do, as you said here with Bosch. But I wanted to talk about... You said there's two types of death and disruption that might kill a business. And you said, and I quote you, a business model can be more or less vulnerable to disruption based on its design. For example, a company that competes mainly on products, services, or price is easier to disrupt than a company that is protected by strong business model moats. I'd love if you'd explain that because I think, it, particularly for startups, and the show is sponsored by Microsoft for Startups, to understand that part is really key because when you're mapping out your model at the start using the business model canvas to understand your future so you almost start with the end in mind is absolutely key absolutely and and that's why in this last book the invincible company you know it's not just a book for big companies and and leaders it's it's also a book for entrepreneurs we created this business model pattern library and the reason we came up with this is very simple. Actually, before we start any book, we always ask, does the world need another business book? And if we were humble enough, we'd always answer with no. But since you know, <laughs> but we see so many challenges in the world, we say, well, look, this challenge hasn't been solved yet. And even though we already talked about patterns in our very first book 10 years ago, we still see companies from startups to established companies not understanding how to compete on business models. They just compete on product, service, and price. And I'm not saying you shouldn't have a great product, service, and price, but what I am saying is it's much easier to copy, and it's, it's really, really hard to stay ahead with these things. So it's not enough. It's not enough. And uh, sometimes you even go bankrupt because you still need to more, earn more money than you spend. So for us, the business model canvas was never really a template because people use it like that. They say, this is my product. This is my segment. Let me fill out the rest. That's a template. What we saw it as was a strategic playground. Let me explain what I mean with that. You might already have your product or service in mind. That's okay. 
can be a starting point, but at the end of the day, you still need a business model and they're better business models and worse business models. Those that are protectable, that give you a competitive advantage are better. And sometimes a different business model can mean $100 million in revenues rather than $10 million in revenues. I've seen that you know, literally in front of my eyes, people who were talking about strategic decisions and they didn't realize they were making a decision between $10 million and $100 million. Let me give you an example, an old one, historic example, uh, which the young people might only remember as a historic example, the iPod. Okay, so when Steve Jobs launched the iPod, he famously stood on stage and said, this is the first time we can put a thousand songs in a pocket, okay? That was technologically hard at the time. Today, you can put 1,000 DVDs in a pocket. Most people don't even know what a DVD is anymore. My kids don't. <laughs> but we could put 1,000 songs in a pocket. Now, what few people see is that that was a business model strategy. He was not just thinking of a superior product. He was not just thinking about competing on technology. What he had in mind is that when people put 1,000 songs into the iPod, into iTunes, guess what's going to happen? It's going to be very difficult. The next time you buy a different device, a new music player, you're going to say, well, if I go to Sony now, I'm going to have to transfer all of those 1,000 yeah. songs? It's, it's, that sounds pretty annoying. So from the beginning, he, what Steve Jobs had in mind was a switching cost strategy. We call this gravity creators, companies that create so much gravity that you can't get away from them, right? <laughs> you can't go to competitors. That's exactly what Apple did with the iPod back then. Everybody saw technology. What they didn't know was that this was a business model strategy. It created a moat. And I believe that this probably created the foundation for the iPhone empire today. So that's a superior business model. You create switching costs. I'll give you another trivial one people don't think of. Transactional revenues versus recurring revenues. Transactional revenues are great. You're earning money. But you know what? If your customers, and often comes with these you know, gravity, your customers are locked in and they pay you again and again and again. Wow, that's the difference between 10 million and 100 million or between billions. Think of an example we like to use it's a Swiss example, Nespresso. We've used it from the beginning, but that's an interesting one. There's a, a machine that makes coffee, but you can only make coffee if you take these uh, single portion Nespresso pods, aluminum pods, you put them in the machine, you press a button, out comes the coffee. So for a long time, there were patents on this. You could only put Nespresso pods in there. Guess what they did? What, what that means? They turned a transactional industry with transactional revenues. You could go buy coffee, from a different brand, you know, whatever you felt like buying from, all of a sudden, you can only use one type of brand because you need to buy those pods. You just created recurring revenues. There was never and still isn't a subscription model to Nespresso because they created this strong effect that created recurring revenues. Those things are not the things I see startup entrepreneurs, in particular technology entrepreneurs, think about. And that then will, they will pay dearly often in the future because competitors will disrupt them or because they earned you know, tens of millions of dollars rather than hundreds of millions of dollars. So understanding business models can really make a phenomenal difference. And one thing I'd add is, and I remember this from an experience in an established company called SCA in Sweden, second biggest manufacturer of hygiene products, when they heard me talk about business models, they realized, wow, actually our technological projects, some of them failed, but they probably failed. They could make the technology work, but they couldn't make it financially work because they probably just used the business model that they're familiar with in their company. They didn't think of which business model could unlock this product. Because Nespresso actually started out, same technology, with a different business model. They almost went bankrupt. It's only when they changed the business model that they could make the machine and the pods work. So the lesson here is business models can make a fundamental difference, either financially, but sometimes even between life and death for the corporation. 
So if you don't understand this, you don't understand how competition works today. It's a phenomenal different, uh, difference. And we don't see enough companies understanding this because they're so into the technology and not saying you shouldn't have great products and services, but they're so into that that they don't realize the real thing is, is when you get the business model right. So I like to frame success as great value proposition that creates value for customers, great business model that creates value for your organization, and the ability to implement and scale. You get those three things, you're going to get it right. Sounds trivial, but actually it's not. Figuring out the value proposition and business model is going to make the huge difference. Take GoPro, a company that is phenomenal from a product and branding point of view. And my kids, I remember them putting, you know, GoPro cameras on their helmets when they went snowboarding and skiing and so. Great company, great branding, but there was no moat around their products, not even a technological or patent moat. Guess what happened? They got into trouble. Now, they tried, but they didn't try hard enough. You need to figure out superior business models or you're going to be under pressure and it's going to be very hard to just constantly come up with new products. It's very hard to constantly come up with new technological innovations, new products, new services. That is a game you can't win anymore. I'm, I sincerely believe that's why you should really look at the business models as the aspect that can leverage your product and technology skills. I always find that the most difficult things for organizations I work with as well is that they're so busy working in the business that they don't work on it and they don't apportion the time to do so. And that's actually the job of leadership. And I love that idea of the co-CEO because one is constantly doing that. That's their role. And oftentimes corporate innovation workers think that they're transforming the business, but they're just optimizing. And that's why I think your work is so important and I really want to shine a light on it. But just going back, there's a great part of the book, which is the portfolio map and how it can be used differently for entrepreneurs, corporate innovation teams and senior leaders. But I'd love if we do this and I'm aware it's audio only, but we'll give it a try if you will. The portfolio funnel pop quiz. So the question I like to ask people is how many innovation projects do you need to invest in? to create a major success? How many projects do you need to invest $100,000 in to create a major success? And then, you know, I ask, is it five? Is it 10? Is it, is it 50 or so? And the answer is actually, and that's where the data starts. I think the number is probably bigger. The answer is it's 250 projects that you need to invest in to get one outlier. Out, outlier. And the data comes from early stage venture capital uh, so the research shows that six out of 10 projects actually don't return capital at all. They're complete failure, right? 60, over 60%. And only four out of 1,000 or, uh, you know, one out of 250 um, give you a 50-plus return on capital. And if you're an established company, multi-billion dollar company, you know, that now we're talking valuation, 50 times return on capital in terms of valuation. Probably, if we're talking revenue, it's going to be more than 250, might be 2,000 projects, right? So people get this wrong. And that is, is exactly what the challenge is today in organizations is that we apply the exploit mindset to explore. So when you're running a business unit, well, you should probably get it right because you know the customers, you know the channels, you know the value proposition. So you know the variables. So there, obviously, when you fund a project, the, the project su should succeed. When you're exploring, you need to be very humble. You're going into a new arena. You don't know anything. So investing in one project is not just a bad idea. It's delusional. <laughs> because you're just neglecting the data from, from decades of venture capital. So this study I have in mind was done twice, and it shows exactly the same data you know, for the last 10 years. So as a manager, if you think you can pick the winner, you're delusional in innovation, right? You can't pick the winner in execution. So again, if we're in a smaller company, then the ratio is not 250 because you're not expecting a multi-billion dollar return. So it can be two to one 
or five to one, depending on how innovative and how big the return should be. But you can't pick the winner. And that's the biggest thing, conversation I have with leaders because they tell me, Alex, we have 10 projects. We did an ideation workshop. We have 10 projects. Which ones do I invest in? And I always say the same answer. All of them, because you don't know. <laughs> and Rita McGrath says, you know, very nicely at, at the very early stages, you can't, you can't see which projects are going to work or not. They actually look the same because you can always make a beautiful spreadsheet and, and uh, you can make a, a, a beautiful kind of PowerPoint. And there's a very, you know, interesting example these days in the world, which some might know, but maybe not so many because it didn't really work, right? It's Quibi, the, the video platform. This was about micro videos for phones. They raised $1.75 billion, okay, to finance it. They had an experienced CEO, Meg Whitman, experienced, you know, kind of, uh, and uh, partner in that with Jeffrey Katzenberg from really serious experience in Hollywood, and they couldn't make it work. Why? Because, you know, when you give people a lot of money, they're actually going to build something nobody wants. So you increase the risk of failure when you give one project a lot of money, you maximize the risk of failure. You're just maximizing the risk of building something nobody wants. And once you've spent almost $2 billion, nobody's going to give you another billion to pivot to a new model. Right? So it's not <laughs> going to work. So the right approach is what venture capitalists do, is they invest in a portfolio because they know they can't pick the winner. And Quibi is not an execution project. If you're building another platform and there are already many out there, even that, you know, kind of unsure if that's going to work, but often that is then really a money game because you're stealing market share from others. So, so there's this delusion a little bit, if I may say, I wouldn't say delusion because often you know, nobody really explained how this really works to, to leaders. And those who know, so here's an interesting thing. Those who know often fear of kind of really doing this. So I remember interviewing one CEO on stage, he's actually a good friend, but I asked him, well, why, why did you never really scale innovation this way in your organization? And he said, well, <laughs> you know, merger and acquisitions were always so much easier because I had the checklist, I could call my lawyers, and the stock market would know exactly, you know, kind of, okay, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. They're comfortable with that. And then he said, well, you know, innovation was a bit of a black box to me. And for the stock market analysts and investors, it was even more of a black box. So I do believe we need to have more educated leaders when it comes to this transformative innovation. And we need to have a more educated market when it comes to investing. Because what you want is a dual kind of financial structure, dividends from the established part of the company, and a more venture capital approach for the exploratory part. The problem today is we mix both into one and then we expect, you know, a Nestle or so to kind of perform. And that is not working today. And most CEOs, you know, just don't have the right board or investor structure to do this the right way. Many of them are even trying to fight off activist investors who are not in the long term. They just want their short short-term returns. And that is all about, you know, uh, cost-cutting and, and managing your existing portfolio. But we also now know that just managing an exploit portfolio is the best way to get disrupted and fail. You, you made me think there of so many things. Firstly, I was thinking about how if you are QB and you've got all that investment, it's, it's kind of like going to a horse race, having saved up for 10 years and only betting on one horse and the fear that yeah. comes with that, the fear of failure. But then if the culture is not right, you won't actually report back the failures properly. And, yeah. and I think of Nokia there, that that was the culture within Nokia. People didn't want to report any failure because they had no psychological safety. So that that's one thing. And then I was thinking about how Jeff Bezos, like I said, has constantly managed his stakeholders and the shareholders to say, this is a long-term game from day one. And it's much easier than having to change their mindset throughout 
and say, no, no, just we're going to experiment with this one. But most investors in Amazon know it's a long-term bet and that it's working. That's the other thing. And then I, w- I thought of Netflix and Blockbuster and how many people say Blockbuster was disrupted by Netflix. Yeah, they were. But Blockbuster were working on a strategy. But like you say, activist investors changed the mindset within the company, Carl Icahn, and made the company double down on what it was doing today and not invest in a future strategy. I know there's a lot in there to unpack, but I'd love you to give your view on that kind of mindset. Yeah, so maybe the first part on educating investors and often, you know, people say, well, easy for Amazon because that's what they always said. They always said they're a growth story. They always said they're not going to make profits. And that is true that that was easier for them, but it also shows that there was a lot of education that, you know, Jeb Bezos continuously did. Or when, you know, you got to watch some videos of him when he's on stage and people ask about the last quarterly report, oh, you must be happy about your quarterly results. And Jeb Bezos says, well, you know, we are happy about them, but we, we, we made those quarterly results five years ago because it's about the long term, right? Now, I like to give the counterexamples. For a very long time, I was wondering, is this even possible in established companies? I asked myself this question. And if you look at Unilever as a good example, when Paul Pullman took over as CEO, he's now retired from that job just recently, he, he had this vision of a company that would seriously invest in sustainability but not at the expense of growth and profits, but in harmony with growth and profits. And it did require a very long-term approach. So his first action was to abolish quarterly results. And his second action was to continuously educate shareholders and say, if you're in it for the short term, don't invest with us. You're on the wrong boat. Uh, We're doing this for the long term. And that is really, really impressive in how they achieved that. And I remember telling this to you know, an investor friend, and he said, well, it's kind of borderline illegal because he's not the owner of the company. It's not up to him to make this call, right? So, so it's an interesting dynamic, but it does show that you can do this in established company because often the excuse in quotes is we can't do this because of investors, et cetera. And, and frankly, you know, I, Easy for me to say, you know, when you're running a multi-billion dollar company as a CEO, hard to do. So I don't want to say that's an easy job, but all I want to do say is it can be done and some have done it. And that, you know, convinces me that we need more of that kind of approach. So that's the first part of the question in terms of leadership and educating uh, the market. The second part is leadership has a really important role in innovation and that is not picking the winners. It's actually creating the conditions for winning ideas to emerge. And that's crucial of a crucial importance because in many cases, you know, CEOs traditionally, you know, think they can pick the winners. That's actually what brought them to their job. And in execution, they can, you know, it made them rise. But innovation is different. It's the context, the conditions you set to let the winning ideas emerge. So I do say, you know, you need to, as a CEO or as a co-CEO, a CEO needs to spend 40 to 60% of his or her time at least on innovation for this to take off. And if it's not him or her, it needs to be a co-CEO. But that doesn't mean the CEO picks the ideas. Those 40 to 60% go to making sure the conditions are in place in terms of culture, in terms of resources, in terms of uh, metrics, what we're measuring, in terms of strategic alignment, giving portfolio guidance, in terms of making sure that exploit and explore are working together. So for me, those are the two main jobs, making sure that shareholders and stakeholders get the mission of what we're trying to achieve with innovation, that this is long-term. And the second one, creating the conditions for winning ideas to emerge not investing in pet projects, you know, with the, the person with the, the nicest business card. Those are the two big things. You get started with that as a leader, you invest in your portfolio, you're going to do pretty well. So I think today what's really missing in innovation is 
the power. It's not even the money. Sometimes there's a lot of money, but there's just innovation theater. It's giving innovation power and then creating the conditions for innovation to flourish. What's going to happen then is you're going to attract the best innovators on the planet. They're going to work for you because there's so few companies today that do this well that if you are among the few that do it well, all the talent will be with you. So this is a unique opportunity to actually win this talent war while there are few companies that create the conditions for innovators to thrive. And that's why we keep coming back to the same examples all the time, like you say. And it's, exactly. it, be, it becomes a slightly annoying, actually, to, yeah, yeah. And, and actually frustrating and actually part of the mission as well. I know it's your mission to make some change in the world, to actually make happier people so that eight out of 10 people who are unhappy aren't. I have loads of more questions for you, but I'm not going to take any more of your time. The, the one that you made me constantly think of is mindset. And while we were talking about how you have to bet on 250 bets in order to get one winner, I thought about students or people working in startups or even children, our children, what they're going to do in the future when there's so much disruption and the speed of disruption is getting, getting quicker and quicker. And I thought about how there's a shift in mindset needed in education, but also in those being educated, both in an existing educating, much, much like the exploit and explore, those exploring to what to do in the futures and those currently in roles exploiting and thinking about what to explore to do in the future, that the mindset needs to shift there as well, that many people need to cultivate new skill sets, new capabilities while they're in existing roles because the market is going to absolutely change and COVID has been an accelerant for so much change. But I'd love to, you as a parting message, talk beyond business models and beyond businesses to mindsets of individuals and how they need to change their mindset in order to reinvent themselves in permanence. Absolutely. And I thought about this question quite a bit because I started an entrepreneurial project with my kids. So I was asking myself, you know, how can I spend more time with my kids? And I thought, well, probably best you know, to do a project. And I really wanted my kids to experience the entrepreneurial mindset. So guess what? Best thing to do is an entrepreneurial project. And just so, for the listener, Alex's kids are two and three. <laughs> <laughs> they're not two and three anymore. They're like, now they're right. Uh, 14 and, and 17. <laughs> so, so the mindset there, what, what, what's important is I thought I want them to experience entrepreneurship to become, you know, potentially become entrepreneurs. But actually what I really realized more and more is not everybody actually needs to be a trailblazer or entrepreneur or innovator. Th this exploit, explore mindset is incredibly important. Of course, we say everybody should have a growth mindset and, and learn new things. And that is true. But not everybody needs to be a trailblazer. There need to be people who also want to follow and they want to do a good job helping the trailblazers. And this is not a value judgment. Oh, the trailblazers are the great ones and the followers are. No, it's actually there trailblazers without followers are worthless, right? Because you can't do things on your own anymore. So my message to students and kids and even adults is figure out what you're most passionate about. What are your strengths, your skills? Is it exploration or is it execution or scaling? Those are not the same things. And both are incredibly valuable. I don't think one is, is more important than the other. They're just different strengths and different things we get passionate about. And we both need each other, right? So for me, you know, what I realized with my kids is I want them to figure out what are they passionate about in terms of their, you know, is it exploration stuff, skills? Is it execution stuff, skills? Because if they figure that out, they will have a much more comfortable path in, in their lives because they won't, you know, try to do this or do that. Because sometimes, you know, there's these fashion trends. Everybody needs to be an innovator. Okay, now I'm going to try to be an innovator. But actually, in my heart, I'm an executor or the other way around. You know, in many companies, execution is the mindset that gives you a career. So a lot of entrepreneurial people or innovators are following the execution period. Don't do that, right? Quit your job. There's more opportunities than ever before. So first and foremost, figure out what you are. Are you an explorer or are you an executor? Both are great. 
both are required for the world. So figure that out and you'll be a lot happier. That's a lovely way to finish today's shows. And Alex, I know you've a plethora of books. Where can people find out about more about your books and Strategizer? Just go to strategizer.com. We strongly believe in freemium. So you can download a quarter of every book we wrote for free. Get a teaser, get a taster. There are a lot of you know things we put on our blog. All the tools are available for free. So just go check it out and see what you like. And uh, maybe some of the things are so exciting to you that you'll get some of our paid products. And just a reminder that this show is brought to you with thanks to Microsoft for Startups, friend of the Innovation Show and author of the great book, The Invincible Company, How to Constantly Reinvent Your Organization with Inspiration from the World's Best Business Models. Alex Osterwalder, always a pleasure to have you on the show. Always great to be with you. Wonderful conversations and keep up the great work. <laughs>